1 John chapter 2. Last week, Pastor Nick asked us two very good questions. He actually asked us to contemplate uh, two very good questions. Do you remember what they were last week? I, that, was, that was a lot of days ago. There's been a lot of things that have happened uh, since then. Do you remember the two questions? That he, do you, you want, can I help you with that this morning a little bit? Can I help you? What was that? Yeah, am I a Christian? That was the first question. What was the second question? Do you remember? What do Christians do? A million points to both of you today. Am I a Christian? What do Christians do? Can can I just share with you that as I was sitting there and listening to him ask those questions, I cringed, not because uh, of the question but because of the word Christian. I've been so averse in uh, these later years of my life to the word Christian because in our culture today, if you are not a, hang with me, if you're not Catholic, you're a Christian. And it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe it and sincere and you can call yourself a Christian. So when he used that word, I'm like, oh, oh, I know what he's doing here and I hope everybody else is feeling it. He's taking the word back, okay? He's giving us structure. He's giving us definition to what that word really means. And that's what 1 John is about. 1 John gives us structure and understanding to what it means for you and I to be little Christs. That's what the word Christian literally means, little Christ, that we are reflection, we are imitators of, of him. And so he asked that great, those great questions. And then his third point uh, had to do with the, that Christians don't forget what he has done. And he said, if we hold tightly to the knowledge of truth, if we know truth, if we Remember the word? He, it was really cool. He used this Greek word, gnosko. And, and he says that means an intimate knowledge of. If you have a, if you have a grasp of the infinite and, and uh, intimate knowledge of God and his love for you, you're going to know some things. You're going to know that your sins are forgiven. You're going to know that Jesus is the Son of God. You're going to know that God is the Father. You're going to know that you can overcome the evil one. And you're going to know that God abides in you. Those are just some things that you're going to know if you have that intimate grasp of what it means to have the knowledge of the truth of God. There are several themes in the book of 1 John. But overarching, if there was an umbrella over all of the chapters in 1 John, it would be this. Christians change. You cannot be a Christian and not change. Christians change. Ask yourself, since the moment I surrendered my life to Christ, have I changed? Now, I want to put some of you at ease this morning. That doesn't happen completely all at once in one moment. Now, true, you are taken from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and you've received forgiveness of sins, Acts 6, uh, 26, 18. Uh, you've, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but you've been made alive together in Christ Jesus. That's uh, Ephesians chapter 2. So we know that that transformation happens at the moment of your salvation. 
but the rest of us are still in progress. Can we agree with that? Are you still in, you're still in progress? I'm, I'm still in progress. I've been a Christ follower for uh, a lot of years, 45 years, and uh, I'm still in progress. You're like, well, yeah, we know you. You're going to be in progress the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, none of us got to that point where we gave our life to Christ. We surrendered our, Christ, our life to Christ, and he said, you are made perfect, perfect from this point on. So what does it mean to be a Christian? John's going to flow this theme throughout uh, 1 John uh, chapters 1 through 5. But Pastor Nick last week, man, he really upped the ante, and he gave you a really kind of neat chart. And I thought, man, I'm not going to let that go. If he's going to have a neat chart, I'm going to have this really cool picture (laughs) up here of the theme of 1 John and our our look for today. So here, it's up on the screen today. Here it is. Ooh, this is good. (laughs) Man. All right, we're going to stand up. We're going to do calisthenics next, okay? I just, I felt like, man, he's, as I sat there, I thought, this dude's got a diagram. I, I'm, I want to have something cool up there. This is, what, this is how John uh, uh, lays his plan out. What you believe matters. It's, out, it's at the foundation of who you are. What you believe matters. What you believe then informs your motives, then your motives generate your patterns of behavior. Now, that can be either good or bad, right? You could have uh, solid beliefs, true beliefs, that are going to inform your motives, and that's going to generate a pattern of behavior. But, but if you have uh, at your core self uh, poor beliefs or sinful beliefs, or, or if they're not even sinful, what if they're just stupid, okay? If they're stupid beliefs... And it, those inform your motives, and then it generates a pattern of behavior. And what do people see? Behavior. That's why the line is longer. This is an iceberg. What is seen underneath the ocean is belief and motives. But what everybody else sees is our behavior. And John gets into that today. He, sh- he tells us, he shows us the difference between why it matters, 1 John chapter 1, why it matters what we believe, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about sin, and what Jesus does with sin. It matters what we believe because it should change us. It should change us. Let me pray, and then we're going to get into the text. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for, uh, for our church. I pray for every person, every seat that is filled, that we would be captured by the awe of not only who you are, but what you've done through Jesus Christ, our Savior what you've done through the power of the Holy Spirit in illuminating the truth and the fact that you've given us this guidebook to know you more. God, I pray that even in this moment, Father, in this moment, as we were to call you Dad, 
that you would speak to us and that we would be listening. Listening, God, not to, not to make different plans, not to create some kind of formula, but just to be listening to your Holy Spirit teaching us and wooing us into a much deeper relationship with you. We pray this in the name of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Christ. Amen. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Let me give you three characteristics. Remember, he asked that question last week. Am I sure I'm a Christian? What do Christians do? Today, let me give you some characteristics of Christians. Characteristics of Christians. Just three of them real quickly this morning. Here's the first one. Christians are different. Christians are different. Look at the text. Second, uh, excuse me, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I want you to, uh, we're going to look all the way down through verse uh, 27 today, uh, but I want you to notice the word abide in verse 17. That's going to be important later on. Christians are different, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Major Ian Thomas uh, wrote just a little booklet called The Indwelling Life of Christ. So the abiding, remaining in Christ, the indwelling life of Christ. This is what he said. It is not a matter of our doing our best for him, but of Christ being his best in us. It's not about us trying to earn the grace and goodness of God. It's allowing Christ to do great things through us. There's a reason that we have been given gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're not so it pigeonholes us into things that we must do. It frees us to do things that God's calling us to do. And it's because of his life in us. Now now notice, notice this. This is very important. Christians are different. They're not obnoxious. There's a difference between Christians who are passionate and Christians who are obnoxious. I talked to some of our staff this week and just asked, what's the difference between an obnoxious fan and a passionate fan? And really, we narrowed it down to this. A passionate fan is all about their team and wanting to see it succeed. Well, an obnoxious fan wants to knock everything about your team and make fun of your team and belittle your team instead of being excited about their very own team. That's a difference between obnoxious. Christians are not obnoxious. Oh, get this. And you're not weird. We're not weird. We're different. And we're called to be different. And, and, and you're going to see this in a little bit. We're not even called to be arrogant. Okay, you're going to see that in the text here in just a little bit. Christians aren't obnoxious. Now look at this very first phrase of verse 15. We're going to spend most of our time in verses 15 through 17. It says, do not love the world. Do not love the world. Now, now in, a, in a grammar understanding of this, the word you is understood. 
So it says, what John is saying here is, you do not love the world. And a literal translation of that is you. Stop loving the world. Do you remember what I said about, maybe didn't. What I said about John a couple of weeks ago is he's older in age now. He's a sage. He's a wise man. And he's talking to these people as his children. He loves them. He wants to guide them. And he lovingly says to them, stop loving the world. Apparently, at least to some extent, the audience to whom John is writing, they were caught up in some kind of a world system. And he's, he's commanding them. In fact, this is the first commandment that you find in 1 John. Stop loving the world is his first, inerrant, uh, uh, first um, commandment that he gives to these people, to, these ch- to this church. And so some were assuming, he's assuming that some of his readers were guilty of loving a world system. And how do we know that? Because, because of the word world. Do not love the world. In the New Testament, the word world is used in three different ways. In some ways, it's meant to just simply to talk about the earth. The world is the earth, all of its physical attributes. In other places, the word world is in place of people. So John 3.16, for God so loves the world of people is a literal translation of that. For God so loved the world of people. But here, the word world means a destructive, evil presence away from God. A destructive, evil presence away from God. It's a system that opposes Christ. And he's saying, stop loving the world and the things in the world. Why? Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Stop. Read it again. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in that person. What's he saying? There is a love that God hates. When we would desire the material, the the things, the, the, the temporary things that this world has to offer more than we desire the love of God... The love of the Father, this is hard to hear. The love of the Father actually does not belong in us. That phrase, all that is in the world, verse 16, for all that is in the world. He's talking about everything the world has to offer. And then he says that everything that the world has to offer can be broken down into two categories. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Two categories, desires of flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Two categories, things we don't have and things we have. The world system gets us to believe that there are things that we don't have that we should have, and once we have them, we should be really proud that we have them. Just two categories here. The word desires, maybe your translation uh, is the word lust. 
A very good translation of that is cravings. And then John uses these two words, eyes and flesh. Things I see and the things I feel. And he says this world is made up of of two categories. Desire, craving for the things that I don't have. I'm not just talking about possessions. It could be about relationships. It could be about careers. It could be anything in that realm. And then once the world gives it to us, we can't help but be arrogant that we have it. But don't think for a moment that all arrogance is noisy. What that word pride, uh, uh, um, the pride of life literally means is wandering about boasting. That's what that phrase literally means. That a person is wandering about boasting. You know you can do that without saying a word. It's an attitude of our hearts. It's how we interact with people. At this conference, I was really challenged. I went to one of the breakouts and uh, during one of the... uh, uh, breakouts, someone asked the question, how do you, how do you know uh, what an unbelieving world is talking about? You know, how do you have those conversations? How do you get connected with those who don't know Jesus and so that you have an opportunity to share the love of Christ with them? How do you get to know them? And the person that came from the audience and the person that was uh, the leader of that breakout just said, Talk to an unsaved person. But in our arrogance and in our pride, when we think, hey, listen, I've got all that I need. I've got a Savior. He's my personal Savior. All of a sudden, we set ourselves on some type of a shelf that's different than being out in our world and sharing the gospel with others or at least talking to them about this difference, this hope, this joy that I have in my life. Christians are different, not obnoxious, not strange, not weird, but they're different. Maybe think is what's the big deal? What's the big deal if I if I love something that this world has to offer? What's what's so big about that? What's so big about the desire of that? And first. John chapter 5, verse 21, the very last verse of this book. John writes this. Little children, keep yourselves from what? Keep yourselves from idols. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, things that I don't have and the things that I do have, things that I want And things that I have and I'm proud like in some way, shape, or form that I didn't have those things. And now I have these things. And and I I really need to thank God for these things that I have. I'm just so proud to have these things in my life. If we love this world system or the things that we have more than we love God, what is it? It's an idol. Christians are different. 
Still not convinced. What's the big deal? It's not so much that you have nice things. The question is, do nice things have you? That's the question. The world system um, has us believing we need something we don't have. Spend any time on any social media device, watching any television set, and within a moment, the world system has us believing we need something we don't have. And I really like the Lexus Christmas commercials. I should get a big red bow out in my... The world system has us believing we need something we don't have and then makes us arrogant when we think we have the best and that's all we need. That's what the world system does. Worldliness is what our culture does to make us, to make sin either less sinful or not sinful at all. Don't miss that. Let me, let me say it again because I wrote it down. Worldliness is what our culture does to make sin seem either less sinful or not sinful at all. And here's the kicker. If we love the world more than we love God, the love of the Father is not in us. That means the love of the world is in us. And it means it isn't actually the culture that's causing the issue. It's me. It's my own desires, my own lusts that want these things. It's my own desires, it's my own lust that looks at sin and makes it less sinful or not sinful at all. Julie and I have talked about this for ages, especially in youth ministry, and we would say, getting us to laugh at sin desensitizes us. Once you begin to laugh at sin, it will desensitize you to the truth of what sin does. Worldliness is what our culture does to make righteousness look odd and strange and awkward and ignorant and absurd and silly and foolish. We as Christians get made out to be some kind of obnoxious, arrogant snobs who are just ignorant and silly and foolish in this world today because we won't engage an unbelieving nation. Instead, we allow worldliness to seep into our lives and worldliness to, to, to sneak into our hearts. And, and instead of living a life of righteousness, we don't look any different. I'm not telling us that we look strange. We're not to look odd. We're not to look awkward. We're to look like Jesus. What did Jesus look like? And this is how you know you're my disciples. If you love one another, it is so simple and yet so profoundly difficult. John is saying in this loving, sage like way don't hitch your wagon to the world. Why? Why is that ridiculous? Why is that ridiculous? Look at, look at the text. It's ridiculous because, verse 17, the world is passing away. That's why it would be ridiculous to hitch our wagon to worldliness or to that lifestyle because it doesn't 
less. There's a built-in design flaw. This world is passing away. If we're going to hitch our wagon and think that the very best that we have is whatever we want to lust after or that we finally get because we've lusted long enough and I finally get it and I'm proud of it, if we think that's all this has to offer, then we've hitched our, our wagon to the world and it's been nothing more than idols. And John's saying, don't do that. Don't love the world. Christians are different. There's a built-in design flaw to the world. It's passing away. Get this. Along with all its desires. All of it's going away. Not because we're getting better. Because God's judgment will be poured out ultimately on the sin of this world. Um, Several years ago. Several years ago. Um, when I was in elementary school, we had a Native American lady come to our uh, school, and she was incredible at weaving uh, and, and making blankets and things like that. And she showed us how to weave these blankets, and it was incredible. And she just did a section, and then she, uh, act- she purposefully made a mistake and then went on and, and did more of the weaving and told us that... Um, in every single blanket that their tribe makes, they willfully put a mistake in it because the only thing that is perfect is what God, the creator, has made. She knew that this world has flaws in its design. The only ultimate joy is going to be found in loving Christ. So, um, what are some telltale signs that you're loving the world? What are the telltale signs that I'm loving the world? Can I give you five of them? Um, I want, just want you to know that this pastor that I went and listened to this last week, he preached for an average, they, they clocked it out this last year, he preached for 54 minutes. Everything. I'm, sne- I'm trying to get in 30. I won't get through everything today. I'm going to figure out how to get to 54. I mean, we're going to do something. We're going to do something to get to 54. Uh, of course, this guy's worth listening to. But beside the back, telltale signs of loving the world. What are some telltale signs? They'll be up on the screen. Let me give you five of them. When things of the world engross our conversations. A telltale sign that we love the world is that when the only thing we're talking about are the things that this world has to offer. What are telltale signs of loving the world? Let me give you a second one. If we are unwilling to part with it, for God's purposes. We love the world more than God if we are unwilling to part with it for God's purposes. Now, this pastor that I uh, got to listen to this last week, his name is Erwin McManus, and the uh, message was already done. It's sitting in my Bible. Uh, it's way ahead of schedule. And uh, then he said something. I said, oh, I'm going to share with you. It's not going to be on the screen. But I just want you to listen to something that he said uh, this week. This Erwin McManus. There is nothing wrong with enjoying the abundance God has given you. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the abundance that God has given you. But there is something terribly wrong when you think everything God has given you, he gave you with only you in mind. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the abundance God has given you, but there is something terribly wrong when you think God has given you 
When you think everything that God has given you, he gave you with only you in mind. You might struggle with loving the world if you're unwilling to part with it for God's purposes. Number three, uh, when we are discontent and grieve what we do not have. We're loving the world when we're discontent and we grieve what we do not have. Jesus said this, Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed, satisfied. Fourth one, when our zeal for worldliness, excuse me, when our zeal for worldly things eclipses our zeal for serving God. We may find ourselves loving the world more than loving God when our zeal for worldly things eclipses zeal for serving God. And the last one, when we pride ourselves on earthly distinctions. A telltale sign of loving the world is when we pride ourselves on earthly distinctive d- distinctions, the the. the The Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee praying in the front of the temple, thanking God that he's not like the tax collector, somehow putting himself in the place of this proud and arrogant life. They're just different. Is anything on that list true of you? Is anything on that list true of you? Christians are different. I know I said we have two more. Hang on, here's the second one. Christians are empowered. That's kind of a weird word. Christians are empowered. We We don't use that word very often. But empowered for what? Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Let let me just put your heart at rest right now. Uh, John used an entirely different book to spend a lot of time talking about the Antichrist. Not going to try and figure all of that out today. Just know that uh, there's an Antichrist and there there are Antichrists. You you know the definition of an Antichrist? Let, Let me break it down for you. It's really simple. Anti Christ. Okay? There are people that are belligerently anti-Christ. Now, he uses this phrase twice. It's the last hour. Again, we don't have time to talk about where that fits in some kind of dispensation or where that happens in some type of future, future plan of God. Don't miss what John is doing. John is toward the end of his life, and he's saying, the time is now. What I'm about to tell you is urgent. And I'm empowering you to do something special. And that empowering to do something special is really simple. Get this. You're going to see it in the text. It's the power of discernment. To know the difference between a true teacher of the gospel of Christ, a false teacher, to know the difference between a truth and a lie. Uh, we often say it like this. It's not so much that, things are, that some things are right and wrong. It's just you have to ask the question, is it wise? To be discerning. And, and that's what these verses are all about. Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they're not of us. For if they had been, been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out 
that it may become plain that they are not of us. So he's just saying that there are false teachers. They're no longer a part of the body there. But you, this is fantastic. Here comes the empowering part. But you, and that's emphatic in the original language, but you have been, here it is, anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that word know there is the same gnosko word. It's that intimate knowledge of the truth. You're not getting it. You have it. You have the capacity to be discerned. You have the capacity of the knowledge of God, the truth of the knowledge of God. You have been anointed. Pastor, you don't know me very well. John is saying to every single person that he's writing to, as a follower of Christ, as a son or daughter of God, you have been anointed in the knowledge of the Holy One. You've been empowered to have this this power of discernment to know the difference between right and wrong, to know what is wise, and to measure it against eternal truth. And you have it from the Holy One. Now, there's some things that happen there semantically in the original language that there's been quite a bit of disagreement and and actually argument as to who is the Holy One being spoken about here. There's some that believe that the Holy One here is the Holy Spirit since he illuminates truth to us that he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. In context, what that means then is that the Holy Spirit can give us extra special revelation and we bounce our experiences over the truth of God's word. Now there's a flip side to that. There are some that believe the Holy One here because of its context. He's talking about the things that they've learned, the truth, and that's in the scriptures. And so the Holy One here is they've been anointed by the scriptures. They know the, they know the scriptures to be true. So, so, so that's the key. Let me tell you the, the, the issue with the first one. If, from what, all right, let me back up. This is what I believe, okay? Can I just put that caveat on it? The Holy One, if it's the Holy Spirit, we put experience over the truth. If it's Scripture, then we put the truth over the Holy Spirit. But if it's Jesus, he's the only one that came full of grace and truth. He is the only one that said, I am the truth. He is the only one intimately connected to the Holy Spirit. Because if all you have is truth and no experience through the Holy Spirit, you're a legalist. You're gonna keep a set of rules. And if all you have is your experience in the Holy Spirit, but it's not based on any truth of the scripture, all you have is liberalism, and an inability to connect the two. I think this has to be Jesus because he's the only one that can meld those two together. All right, let's get to the third one real quickly. I'll let you go. I won't go 54 minutes. I may go 45. Here's the last one. Christians abide. Christians abide. This is a theme of John. John wrote the first book, the Gospel, John, in John John chapter 14, 15, and 16, and especially in John chapter 15, you see this word abide or remain several times, several times. He uses the illustration of vine and branches, abide in me and I will abide in you. It's a big passage in John chapter 15, and he sticks with that idea as he's writing to the church. So the church would have read his Gospel, and they would have remembered the word abide and remain 
And then they would have gotten this letter and it would have been read to them and it would remind them that God is inviting us to a relationship, but not only to a relationship. That word abide, remain, means fellowship. He's calling us to abide in him, to fellowship with him. Uh, A.W. Pink, he's a, a great theologian. He said this, to abide in him is to have sustained conscious communication with him. To abide in Christ signifies the constant occupation of the heart with him. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. The scriptures, the gospel, let it abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing, reminding you again, the, re, the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, he doesn't say that, that, understand what he's saying, that you have no one to teach you. It's that you know the truth. We can learn it together. You know the truth. But as his anointing teaches, about, teaches you about everything, and it is true, there's no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. That word abide is actually in a present tense, which means keep on. It's a continual process. Keep on, keep on abiding in Christ. Christians are different. Christians are empowered. Christians are to abide in Christ. You might ask, uh, and let me finish here. You might ask, how, how do I, what does it mean to abide in Christ? How do I do that? I'm going to share with you next, this isn't a formula, this is a process. It's a process of growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to give you some things. How do, how do we abide in Christ? Number one, by being confident of your position in Christ. Be confident of your position in Christ. Your identity is in Christ, it's not in what you do, it's not in, in your successes, it's not in what you have, it's not in your failure. It's not on based on who you are, it is based on whose you are. Be confident of that. To abide in Christ, secondly, be intentional about time spent alone with God. You can't, you can't say, I'm growing in my deepening relationship with God if you've not spent time alone with him. You can't, you can't say it. And, and guess what? Christians change. Here's the good news. The triangle with the whole thing of belief and, and uh, what was the second one? Thanks, motive. <laughs> and then behavior at the top. The, the, even if those are things that are bad, that end up in this bad behavior, um, there's forgiveness for that, right? You, you know that you can change your triangle. Be intentional about time spent alone with God. It's not to earn God's love. It's not to check something off of the list. It's an opportunity to deepen your relationship with him. Third, be aware of his intentional desire to be alone with you. I, stop. Just, if you're writing, just stop and bask in this for a moment. Let me read it again. Be aware of his intentional desire to be alone with you. <laughs> with you. God, creator of the universe, 
His Son, Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, wants to be with you, wants to be alone with you, wants to interact with you. You're like, I don't even like being alone with myself. Here's the last one. You're like, good, he's almost done. Be ready for the battle. Be ready for the battle. We have an enemy. His purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. The problem is, he'll do it from the inside. Verse 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He doesn't have to use culture. He doesn't have to use a world system. He just has to get us to believe. That's all Satan has to do. And we have a tendency that, that when we sin or do something stupid, oh, I've just, just been feeling oppressed by Satan. Um, Satan is not brother of Jesus. Satan is not an uncreated one. He's a created angel who has fallen. Uh, he is not everywhere present. He is not, every, uh, he is not all-knowing. He is a fallen angel, fallen from heaven. He has a series of hundreds of thousands of demons. I can almost guarantee you that none of us are important enough that Satan's coming after us. He's probably using some weenie little demon uh, coming after us. Let, let's just be okay with saying, all right, I'm, I'm a sinner and I do stupid things. But I am forgiven. And God is changing me. And I want to be different. And I want to be empowered. And the only way that's going to happen is if I stay tied to the vine. If I abide in Christ as he abides in me. Close, close all your stuff. Or shut your phone off. Thank you so much for hanging out with, uh, with me today. Thank you for singing and worshiping today. Um, didn't really know where I wanted to head at the end of a service today. I've looked at this in several different ways. Um, I was actually outside of a CVS pharmacy uh, yesterday. Um, I'm just going to tell you where I was. I was in L.A. Uh, and I'm, that West Coast is awesome. Uh, and there's a very different church than Pontiac Bible Church happening out there. And they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And it was crazy. It was fantastic. But I'm sitting outside the CVS. Uh, you don't care. I was drinking a sparkling water. You don't care. Um, and as I was sitting there, I actually pulled my Bible out on Street corner of Broadway in L.A., fashion district. It's crazy. I'm a Midwestern kid who worked on a farm. What am I doing out here? And I pulled my notes out, and I get to the end, and I'm just running through some things in my head, and I'm trying to come up with this interesting way to end so that you would spend some time responding to God. And I, I just got, to, I got nothing. I sat there for an hour and a half eating a cliff bar, and drinking this sparkling water. And here's what I came up with. Are you different? Are you empowered? Do you 
abide? And the reason I'm asking you those questions is because I asked myself that question sitting in front of a pharmacy. I was so challenged by this church that they are so about the lost. And I I just sat there in awe that, God, you have me in L.A. with this church. And I'm talking about being different. I'm telling you, they're different. In fact, they made fun of us Midwesterners. And in some of the breakouts, they were making fun of us as Midwesterners. And I quietly said, so everybody around me could hear, I'm from the Midwest. I wanted everybody to know, I'm from the Midwest. We're not weird. You're weird. (laughs) It was strange. They were different, but they weren't obnoxious. Here's what this church did. They loved everyone they came in contact with. Everyone. Are you different? Are you empowered? Are you abiding? Ask yourself the question as I pray.